0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we come before you and uh, we come well aware that we are a sinful people. Lord, as the old uh, Book of Common Prayer says, we have erred, we have strayed from, from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much our own devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended your holy law. We have definitely left things undone that ought to be done, and we have done things that ought not to be done. And so we pray, Lord, for your forgiveness. And we also remember as we come before you as your people that you are welcoming us in In Jesus Christ's righteousness, that as we come before you at all times, we are covered in Jesus' righteousness, and you welcome us this morning. And so we come as your thankful, joyful, forgiven, beloved people. And Lord, we want to pray for the church as it gathers this morning, whether that's the global church. We think of Lorian, and we pray that you would be protecting them and strengthening them and emboldening them to, to love and serve their neighbors and to speak of you. Um, we want to pray especially for the church uh, in Indonesia with the tsunami. Lord, we pray that your church would shine there, um, serving the needs that are there. Lord, we pray for this massive amounts of people to come to Christ during this time. Um, And we pray for your church gathered even in the city. We pray for uh, churches like Center Church. And we pray for their Christmas celebration and their Christmas Eve celebration, Lord. We pray that you'd bless that. We pray for Impact Church, Lord, this morning as as they're gathering to worship your people. We pray for uh, Faith Bible Church Menifee as it gathers across the freeway, Lord. We pray that they too would enjoy. Um, your grace, your spirit working among them today. And we pray for revival as a large church in our area, Lord. We pray that it would be a great beacon of the gospel um, this weekend and, and this week. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. We pray, Lord, that you would guard your glory. We pray that you would only give your glory to your Son. We pray that the Lamb would receive the full reward of his sufferings, both here and in eternity. And as we gather, Lord, we pray that you would fill us, fill us to understand your word, fill us to love your word, fill us to love you, and we pray Lord that you would empower the preaching of your word this morning in Jesus name amen so christmas of, of course is a time when we uh, traditionally celebrate Christ's birth and it's actually one of kind of big, five big days in the church calendar you might not be aware uh, you might be aware of christmas and easter but there's there's christmas there's good friday Um, When when we remember his death, there's Easter when we remember his resurrection. There's Ascension Sunday that we celebrate when he ascended 40 days after he rose from the from the dead. And then at Pentecost, and that's an event in Christ's life because that's when he sent the Spirit down and sent his gifts into his church. And so um, this is a huge time for us. We do a lot of Christmas here, um, and you guys have experienced that if you've been with us. It's five weeks of Advent. Um, for a lot of you guys, you're doing Advent at home, and if you're doing Advent at home, uh, tonight's the night that you, whatever kid is lucky enough to light candles, gets to light four, and our kids have been very strategic about this. Um, Nobody wanted to go first because they only get to light one candle. So, you know, that's no fun. I'm really having trouble here. This is why you have the kids do it. But, um, yeah, so the the best one is tonight or Christmas Eve when you light the fifth one. You get to light five. But um, if you guys need any uh, guides for Advent, uh, just let me know. and You can even just do it tonight even if you haven't been doing it. Um, yet, but it's a great time to, especially if you've never done family worship before, to get in the habit of reading the Word and praying together and singing together. And um, so if you, if you want some guidance on that, hit me up afterwards. I can give you um, the information on it. You can do it tonight and Christmas Eve. We've been in this series in Luke, and if you look at your cards, we're looking at different people and their reactions to the birth of Jesus. And so we looked at uh, Zechariah, old Zechariah. We looked at Mary's reaction. We looked at the shepherd's reactions. We looked at Herod's reaction. He's the not-stoked king here on the corner. And then to, today we're going to look at Simeon's reaction. He's this guy here with his hands up. And we're, gonna look, we're looking at how these different people have reacted to the news of the birth of Christ. And so this morning we're looking at Simeon. And the setting here, as Christina read, is that um, Joseph and Mary are bringing their infant child Jesus to the temple to present him. But God's got a surprise for them. They think they're just coming to do like a baby dedication, presentation. You know, and they're surprised because God has sent somebody, Simeon, who's been waiting in the temple to to see the Messiah. It says in verse twenty five, it says, "As Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the Messiah." And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he would seen the Lord's Messiah. So it's really a neat scene because you've got Joseph and Mary, and they think they're coming to present their baby to God. But it turns out that God's got a plan to present their baby to them through Simeon, to present something about his mission and his purpose. And so what's Simeon's response here? We, we looked at all these other responses Um, The last few weeks, we looked at Zechariah, and his response was joy and praise. And we looked at Mary's response to the announcement of Jesus' coming, and it was courage, remember. And the shepherds, it was worship. And Herod, it was opposition and violence. Well, we're going to look this morning at Simeon, and he gives us two different reactions that we have to the birth of Jesus. And the two reactions are comfort and conflict. Do you see both comfort and conflict in this passage? The first section that Simeon does is a song. It's a hymn, and it's a song of comfort. In the second part, Simeon does a prophecy, and it's a prophecy of conflict. Let me show it to you. Look at verse 28. Simeon took up Jesus in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you presented in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This first part here is a song. It's a song of comfort. And you see the parents' response in verse 33. Father and the mother marveled at this. And they were probably like, wow, that's really nice. You know, it's a little weird, the old guy coming up and grabbing our baby and everything. But but he's got this really nice, comforting thing to say. You know, they're like, oh, that's nice. And then Simeon's like, what? I'm not done yet. And then he says this, And Simeon said to Mary the mother, Behold, this child is appointed to be the fall and rise of many in Israel, and a sign that is opposed. And his sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. It's a prophecy of conflict. And so Jesus' birth brings us both comfort and conflict. On the one hand, it's comfort, because this is the beginning of all God's promises, his ancient promises being made good in the birth of this, this son. Massive comfort. On the other hand, it causes conflict because every person must now make a decision for or against this child who was born king of the world. This is a child that was born to reign over all of us, as, as the song that we sing just said. And so there's a forced decision here, and there's conflict because of that. So we're going to look at both the comfort and the conflict. First, the comfort. Take a look at verse 28 again. Jesus brings comfort. Simeon so takes up Jesus into his arms. You see these, you know, we assume he's an old man and he's holding Jesus in his hands. And he says, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all people. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and for a glory to your people, Israel. Notice that those sections, uh, probably in your Bible, they're, they're actually formatted differently. Do you see that? That the rest of the Bible is formatted one way, and then they're kind of like scrunched in. It's formatted that way to show that it's poetic verse. This is actually a song or a hymn. Traditionally, it's been called the Nuctitmus, which means now you dismiss in Latin. Uh, this is a song called Now You Dismiss. It's as, if it's, it's, it's as if Simeon is this watchman in the temple, and he's waiting for the Messiah to come. And now that the Messiah has come, the Lord's dismissing him from his post. And it's a song. And what do we know about Simeon? We know that he's righteous and devout. It says in verse 25. Um, we, we don't know that he's a priest or a clergy. A lot of people think he was a priest, you know, kind of receiving Jesus. doesn't say he's a priest. Um, it, it says in verse 25 that he's waiting. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. It says in verse 25 at the end that he has this direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit tells him, like, I'm not going to let you die until you see the Messiah. And then he tells him when he sees him there, he goes, this is the one. He gets this direct revelation from God saying, this is the one. And so he sees Mary and Joseph bringing this baby in, and he realizes, this is the one I've been waiting for. This is God's salvation. He says in verse 31 that this is God's salvation prepared. Do you see that? Prepared. This is something God has been working on since before the foundation of the world. This is something, this Messiah, he's not an afterthought. He's, He's planned in the presence of all the people for this to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of thousands and thousands of years of promises and prophecies. He's a salvation prepared. He's also a salvation prepared in the presence of all people. Do you see that in verse 31? It says your salvation prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. Je- Jesus is God's one and only global Savior. Jesus is God's one and only global savior. He is the savior of both the Gentiles, it says, and Israel. This this Middle Eastern child was born not just to save people of the East, but to save people of the West, to save people of the North and South. As Revelation says, from every tribe and language and people and nation. He's for the Gentiles. He's for the Gentiles, not just the Jews. It says in 32 that he is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He pictures the Gentiles, the non-Jews, as those who have been in darkness until the Messiah comes. And I was just thinking this week about my own people. My people come from, you know, northern Europe. And my people worshipped all kinds of false gods before the light of the Messiah came upon us Gentiles. Um, my people would have worshipped people like gods like Odin and Thor and Loki. And you guys are like, Marvel characters? <laughs> it's like, no, not Marvel characters. That's where it comes from. But I was listening to an audiobook, Norse. Uh, mythology, a really interesting book on, on these gods and what we would have worshipped. And that's what my people would have worshipped. They would have been in darkness until the Messiah shed light on who God really was. And you listen to those stories and those gods sound just like people, right? Because those were the tales that they spun around the campfire until, until God came in the Messiah to give a light of revelation, to show what God is really like. Guys, we wouldn't know what God was really like until Jesus came. It says also here that he is... Um, For Israel, it says Jesus is their glory. I love that. Look at verse 32. Jesus is the glory of Israel. Jesus is where the history of Israel had always been pointing, had always been building towards. Every person, every event that we see in the Old Testament was placed there to eventually show off Jesus when he came. Isn't that amazing? Israel's whole story was to highlight their Messiah, Jesus. He's the glory of Israel. And I was thinking, it's like, it's like the whole history of Israel being like a, a setting for a diamond, you know, and that diamond is Christ, he's their glory. This is the glory of Israel. When we think of Jesus the Messiah, even in saying the word Messiah, we should remember this is their Messiah. This is Israel's glory that we get to partake in. People from Northern Europe, people worship Odin and Thor and all that. We found Israel's Messiah. He is their glory. It's as if all of Israel's history is like a a stalk coming up out of the ground to eventually bloom forth a rose, and that rose is Christ. Jesus is the glory of Israel. And so as you read the story of Israel, what you're seeing is a buildup for eventually saying, here he is, here's our glory. And so if you're trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, you're trusting in a Jewish Messiah. You're trusting in the glory of Israel. But don't don't miss the biggest thing he says. It's right in the beginning. He says that Jesus... It's, it's wild. So here's this old guy, and he's looking right at Jesus, and he says to God this, My eyes have seen your salvation. Don't miss the big point. The big point is that Jesus is God's salvation. Jesus is God's salvation. Jesus is not a part of God's plan of salvation. It's not like you got Jesus and you got some other things you'd add. Jesus is God's salvation. When Simeon is holding Jesus between his two hands, he is holding his entire salvation here. doesn't include anything he's going to bring in his own hands or in his pockets or anything else or in the temple, none of that. All of that fades away. Jesus is God's salvation plan, not for you to add to it. It's his whole salvation. It's all wrapped up in one person. Isn't that amazing just to think about this old guy and what he holds between his two hands is God's full saving plan. Your salvation is wrapped up in a person. Um, and what's so cool is that Simeon actually gives us a beautiful illustration of what saving faith looks like. You know what it looks like? Empty hands holding Jesus. It's a beautiful example of how can a person be made right with God? How can a person be saved? They're saved by empty hands. We don't bring anything to the table. None of our own works. Nothing to the cross you bring, Right? simply to christ you cling that's it it's only your empty hands and then you you're using those empty hands to hold on to christ if you're by faith trusting in christ you have full access to god on the final day when when god judges all people and he will judge every single human being the one way to have access to god the one thing you can hold up to him to get access to god is jesus is the only thing you can bring don't bring anything else that's what saving faith looks like it looks like these sinful hands holding on to that perfect person. And so I want to ask you this morning, is Jesus the only thing you're holding on to? The only thing you would dare present to God on the final day to be welcomed into heaven? Very important that there not be anything you're adding to this. It is only Christ. And so Simeon knows that. He knows he's holding his whole hope of salvation. And look at verse uh, 29. He says, Lord, now I can die. He says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. I need nothing more for me to live in total peace and to die in total peace. Jesus gives immense comfort. That's the first thing. And yet, we know from the rest of the passage, Jesus brings conflict, (laughs) He gives comfort and conflict. Simeon gives these beautiful words to to the family, and it's it's even a song, it's a musical, you know, it's a song, it's a happy, encouraging song, but Simeon isn't done yet, right? After this encouraging song, he has this prophecy, and the prophecy is dark. Take a look at 34. And to Mary, his mother, Simeon said, behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts might be revealed. The birth of Jesus brings both comfort and conflict. Simeon knows something about Jesus. He knows that every single human being is either going to rise or fall based on their response to Christ. Every single human being is going to have an opportunity to worship or oppose him. And he knows, too, that our responses to Jesus say a lot about our own hearts. A lot about our own hearts. You see, Jesus is the kind of person that forces everyone to pick a side for or against him. He, he's not, there's no moderate responses to him. Um, we have to choose a side, and with that side choosing, it determines our rise and our fall. It determines our, our eternal destiny, right? And it shows a lot about our hearts. Jesus' birth forces a decision. It, the decision is this How will I respond to this one who is born to be my Savior and King? How will I respond? You know, how will I respond to the claims of Jesus? He says in verse 34 that the rise and fall is determined by how we respond. And that had context historically, right? All these religious people, um, there were priests and Pharisees and Sadducees, and their destiny was determined by how they responded to Jesus. Or irreligious people like Pilate, you know, his fate, determined by how he responded to Jesus. How will you respond to Jesus? He's Savior and King. That response is super important. There's no neutrality, right? He said, look at verse 35. He says that Jesus, the person, will be a sign that is opposed, right? So it's it's worship or opposing. Um, Years ago, when we did college ministry. So David and Josh and I, we did college ministry for like 10 years together. And there was a couple that was coming. One of the ladies that came to our study, she invited her sister and her sister and her boyfriend came. And it was so cool. They were kind of processing and li- really listening to the claims of Christ. They'd never been to church or anything before. And the woman was more interested than the, than the boyfriend was. And, and one day he said to her, the boyfriend said to the girlfriend, he says, well, if you do become a Christian, just don't become like really intense about it like your sister. And I love what the, what, what the, the girlfriend said, because she wasn't even a believer yet. And she said, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. She says to her boyfriend, she goes, if Jesus is who he said he is, there's no way you can be too into it. You know? And I was that's amazing, right? For somebody that doesn't know him. There is no middle or moderate way with Jesus. You guys know the old song, I think it's from the 70s, it's the birds. Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus is just all right. And he goes, "I don't care what other people say. Jesus is just all right with me." Guys, that's not a response to Jesus. Like, you aren't listening to his claims. Like, he claims to be the Savior and King of the world. There is no, yeah, yeah, right? This doesn't happen. So, Jesus' claims either cause worship or opposition. I love what C.S. Lewis said about it. He said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people say about Jesus. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was a mere man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a person who thinks he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And then he says this, Now it seems to me obvious that Jesus was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. This is the other options. And consequently, I love how he puts this, However strange or terrifying or unlikely it might seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. You know, those are the options, right? I mean, just to kind of piggyback on what he said, like imagine you're taking a philosophy class, and one day in the philosophy class, your philosophy professor says, I'm the savior and king of the world. Would you leave the class going, wow, that was a great teacher. You wouldn't, right? You wouldn't go on one of those things where you review your professor. This guy's awesome. Little messiah complex, but he's great. No, you wouldn't have that. Like, guys, seriously, Jesus, if he isn't who he said he was, he should be opposed like, the people that oppose him strongly are paying attention, okay? They're wrong, but they're paying attention. We should oppose him like David Koresh, not pander him with occasional prayers and thoughts and compliments, right? He's, he's either God and Savior, or he is to be opposed. There's no neutrality. You have to worship him or oppose him. If Jesus is not the Messiah, we need to repudiate him in the strongest possible language, right? If he is the Messiah, then no level of devotion is too much, Right? like with that couple. Simeon in verse 35, he indicates that how we respond to Jesus says a lot about who we really are. Take a look at it. He says that thoughts of hearts are revealed. And that certainly happened. That, ha- that happened in Israel in the, in the first century. When Jesus came into Israel, there were all these people that looked like they all just like totally loved God and were waiting for the Messiah, right? And they had all these different views and stuff like that. But they all seemed like basically devout people that wanted the Messiah to come and be their savior king. And then he comes, and what happens? Most of them don't want him, right? That shows something. When we reject Jesus as Savior, it reveals something about our hearts. It reveals self-righteousness. I'm not so bad that I need a Savior, right? When we reject Jesus as King, it reveals something about our hearts. I want to be King, right? Um, and, And the way we do it really commonly in our culture is you hear people say, I'm spiritual but not religious, which is basically a way of saying, You know, I'm basically good, I don't need a savior, and I want to still be king, right? I mean, it sounds really nice, I'm spiritual, not religious, you're like, oh, okay, that's good for you, or whatever. What what that means is, I don't need a savior, I don't need a king. Jesus reveals hearts. He causes conflict. He he brings both comfort and conflict. But guys, what's interesting is, even for those of us who believe and have sided with Jesus, he causes conflict. Has Jesus caused conflict in your life? right? Like, even like, yeah, yeah, okay, you're my Savior and Lord, but he still causes conflict, right? We see that in Simeon's words to Mary. He has a personal word for her, and it's in parentheses there. You see that in verse 35? It, because most of it's like global. This is how people are going to respond to Jesus, and then there's this quick parenthesis. By the way, this one's just for you. And he says this to her, a sword will pierce your own soul also. He says this directly to the mom. Can you guys imagine the next time I do a baby dedication? <laughs> I'm like, this child, it's going to be great for you guys. It's going to bring you such comfort. And he's going to cut you. <laughs> you know, like, which is true, right? Like, all parenting has a bit of a sword in it, doesn't it? But Simeon has this personal word. He says that she's going to be pierced in the soul. The word soul there being kind of the, the seat of her emotions, going to pierce you right in the soul. And, and this word for sword, there's multiple Greek words for sword. This is the word for, like, the big sword with the double edges, right? So there's going to be this sword that's going to go through your own soul. And lots of parenting brings a sword to the soul, right? I mean, you could do testimony time and we could talk about that. But this son's sinless. How does a sinless son cut his mother in the soul? Well, one of the instances happens in in this chapter. If you drop down to the end of chapter 2... You have this whole situation where Jesus is, they lose him at Passover, and don't judge these parents, they were in a big group, and it could happen to anyone, but they lose Jesus, they go back home, they realize they don't have him, then they go back and they look for him, they're looking all over, and then in verse 38, when the parents saw Jesus in the temple, they were astonished, and his mother said, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress, and Jesus turns and says, why were you looking for me? It's kind of intense, 12-year-old kid says that to you. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's house? Now she just said, Your father and I were looking for you. And he goes, Well, I was with my father. Right? There's a sword of the soul here. She doesn't have a normal relationship, a normal mother son relationship with her son. Her son is her Lord. Her son is her king and savior. It's a different kind of, it's a sword of the soul. Stuff like this happened a lot. You guys remember there's a kind of a more mild incidence when uh, Jesus turns the water into wine and, and Mary goes, They have no wine. And what does she say? What does he say to his mom? Woman? Interesting. Woman? What does this have to do with me? Not the typical way a Jewish man talks to his, wife, his, his mom, right? And, and you remember the time that Jesus was out in that crowded house teaching. And his, his, his mother and his uh, siblings came, and they were looking for him. And someone yells to Jesus, hey, your, your mom and your brothers are looking for you. You remember what he said? He said, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And he stretches out his hands. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my mother and sister and brother. Sword of the soul, right? It's not easy being Jesus. He's a sinless man, but not easy being Jesus' mother. And then ultimately, Jesus' uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, was cut to the soul of the cross, right? As she stands at the foot of the cross watching her son writhe and bleed for hours on the cross. Um, You guys remember the old Passion of the Christ movie? You know, there's a scene in there which isn't in the Bible, but I think is super good at kind of capturing the sword in Mary's soul. And it's that scene where she has a flashback and sees her little boy, Jesus, I'm going to start getting emotional. It's crazy. I don't know why this hits me so much. But um, where little kid Jesus falls, and then it's flash forward to him falling under the weight of the cross, and you just sense the pain, the sword in the soul. Guys, if you're truly his, Jesus will bring both comfort and conflict, and he will pierce your own soul also. Merry Christmas. (laughs) It's helpful for you to know that, though. It's actually quite comforting to know that. It's quite comforting to know that that's normal right? That he will pierce your own soul also. You'll have great comfort like Simeon. You'll be able to live and die in peace, but you'll also be pierced by him as well. You're going to be pierced by Jesus. If you really know him, you're pierced by him exposing your guilt, exposing your sin. It's not comfortable to have your sin exposed. And when I say guilt, I'm not talking about subjective feelings that may or may not be true. I'm talking about objective guilt. I'm talking about the guilt of a criminal that's already been sentenced. You, I, we all have guilt before God, objective guilt real guilt that's there whether we feel it or not and and we realize when we're around jesus that we're guilty you know you can compare yourself to a lot of people we play this game all the time like man am i a bad person am i a good person then you think well let's line up five or six people next to me and do a comparison right isn't that what you usually do and you stack the deck in your favor you go like well how about that guy at work and i'll take now when you live with jesus you actually compare yourself to jesus and then you realize you are not good. You know, that comparison shows you how far you've fallen short of God's standard. As Christianity, guys, is not, is, is, it's about removing guilt, not giving it. But you have to see the malignancy first for it to be removed. You have to see your guilt. Jesus pierces us in the soul there. Jesus also pierces us in the soul by exposing our corruption. Because it turns out that we are not basically good people that occasionally do bad things. That's what we like to think about ourselves. I'm basically a good person that occasionally does bad things. It turns out that we are basically bad people that occasionally do things that look good that are also actually bad. Okay, like that's what Jesus shows about us. There's a corruption inside. I love that you guys feel good about that. There's a corruption inside. We aren't sinners because we we aren't. It it isn't our our sin that makes us sinners. Our sin comes because we're sinners. You aren't a sinner because you sinned. You sin because you're a sinner. There's something deeply wrong with us, right? There's something fundamentally wrong with our whole way of thinking and feeling and living, and that needs to change. Because when you first come to Christ, you go, now I've done a lot of bad things, I need forgiveness. And then you realize, like, there's something actually wrong inside that's producing all this. Jesus shows us our corruption. Living with Jesus exposes that. I'm sure it did that for Mary. I'm sure that was painful. Jesus puts us at war with the very root of our being. We actually found a way before to kind of live at peace with our sin, right? Before you come to Christ. And then when he sends his spirit into us, all of a sudden there's a war in there, right? He brings a sword. There's a war that we have been put in. The Holy Spirit wars within us against our sin and we war with our sin. And so we find out it's not just about what we do, it's about why we do it. He exposes our corruption, the corruption of our motives and intentions. It's a sword in your soul jesus guys like a wise surgeon cuts you to heal you we need this this isn't a bad thing this is a good thing he cuts us in order to heal us but the cutting hurts jesus brings both comfort and conflict a sword into our own souls And I was just thinking about, man, like that's an important thing for people to realize. Like Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, count the costs. Like realize you're going to pick up your cross and follow me. He doesn't kind of sell it like a lot of slick people will do now saying, you know, just kind of here's all the benefits. Let's not talk about the sword of the soul, right? But Jesus is very upfront about these things. But guys, we take these swords with comfort because we know that Jesus took the ultimate sword for us. Right? We take these swords of the soul because we know that he took the ultimate sword, the sword of God's justice that we deserved, to give us the comfort of the kingdom. And I want to just share with you real quick a few ways he chose the sword for you. He chose the sword for you in his incarnation. Hebrews 10.5 uh, says this. This is a really cool passage, by the way. So this passage is actually what the Son of God said to God the Father right before he became the infant Jesus. Okay? Let me read it to you. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, so this is like an incarnation thing. So the thing about this right before uh, he's conceived within Mary. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and he's saying this to the Father, I would assume, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure and then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. So what you have here is God the Son about to come into the world. He's, he's never had a body before, but he takes on a body, and he has the body forever you know, into the future. And so right before he takes on this body, it's, it's as if he's standing at the ledge of heaven, right? It's like, it's like he's a paratrooper, and he's standing at the ledge of the open door of the plane, about to jump in and be our rescuer. And he says this to the Father, he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. not that intense? Isn't that awesome? do you love that? And then he says, behold, I have come to do your will. And then he jumps and he, and he lands in here in enemy lines, behind enemy lines as a baby. And he came, guys. I know, it's like the craziest thing, right? Most vulnerable kind of way to come in. And, and he came, guys, to be our offering on the cross. But first he had to live our righteous life. I think a lot of times people miss this. Jesus, there's theologians talk about two types of obedience that Jesus had. Passive obedience and active obedience. When they talk about passive obedience, they're talking about the obedience he had as he died on the cross. It's one type of obedience. Then there's active obedience. Active obedience is his whole righteous life that he lived up until then. Guys, that whole righteous life that he lived was for you to have a perfect record it's so that the great exchange could happen where your sin is put on him on the cross but then his perfect righteous life is credited to you you trade places right and so the act of obedience was all about him building up this perfect record of obedience that's yours and this is why jesus could not have died under herod and been our savior couldn't die as a baby and we'd be worshiping like baby savior doesn't work that way. Why? Because he had to live a perfect life in our place. He didn't just need to kind of deal with the early childhood sins. He needed to live a perfect righteous life in our place and it wasn't easy. I think a lot of times we think of Jesus as you know because he's God and he is God because he's God that it was easy for him. Just walks around like God all the time you know easy to live a perfect life. It wasn't easy. Take a look at Hebrews 5 7. This is he chose the sword in his perfect life for us. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe. doesn't sound easy, right? So Jesus, in his life, as he grew up and as he lived, at every stage of his life he had to learn to perfectly obey the Father with a new set of God's demands that are appropriate for that age. And he never failed in it, but it's something that he had to learn each time. And it came through great suffering and pain. This wasn't easy. Is the Christian life easy for you? Well, you're silent about that. So, who's living the Christian life? And then, okay, good. Is it easy for you? No, it's not easy for you. Try living the Christian life as the incarnate God Jesus with Satan full time on you, right? So, this is the Messiah. This is the one that Satan needs to take down. All the forces of evil on you your whole life. Satan probably isn't directly dealing with you. He's got people dealing with you some of the time doing the thing, right? Full time, highest priority, constant resistance. This was not easy for Jesus, this was a sword. This was something he dealt with. But he's amassing that perfect record in your place. And it was from a whole life's worth of his sweat and tears and pleading and pain. He chose the sword for you. And then ultimately, where did he choose the sword for you? On the cross, right? Hebrews 12 says that Jesus... Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You guys remember him in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's on the ground. He's sweating like big drops of blood. He's pleading with God, is there any other way to do this to save these people? He's agonizing in the garden. Then what does he do? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He gets up, and you know what he does? He walks right into the group of soldiers coming for him. They didn't have to hunt him down. They didn't have to find him under a plant. You know? They didn't have to like, search for him. He stood up and he said, let's go. My accuser awaits. Isn't amazing. He that amazing? He chose the sword for you. He chose the sword of God's justice for you. He, he, he did it for the joy set before him. And part of that was he wants to share with you his comfort in the kingdom that he earned for himself. He wants to give to you. And so, guys, as we take the Lord's Supper... We remember this. We remember and we receive Christ. Just like Simeon held that child Jesus in his hands, he he was literally holding his whole salvation between his two hands. We have an opportunity this morning to grab hold of Christ. There is no good reason for anyone to leave those doors and not be holding fast to Christ. Like, well, I'll do it later, I'll do it when I'm ready. When you're ready for what? empty hands. You have empty hands? Grab hold of Christ. Hold on to him. That is what God is. Now, and there's sword that comes with that, right? I'm not saying he's not going to change your life. That's going to be great too, right? It's a promise of both salvation and purification and change. He wants to live in and through you. It is wonderful news. It's something you could receive today. And so for those of you who are holding fast to Christ, We'd invite you to come up during the next few songs and take communion, um, the Lord's Supper. And there's two tables there's one there and one there. And you can, we did it a little different. You can come up anytime and take it. The bread is gluten free, so you don't need to worry about that. Uh, take the bread and the cup and take it with your family. Take it with your friends. Take it with the person that's sitting next to you. Invite those who are uh, by themselves to take it with you. And remember what Christ has done. Remember that he has taken the sword of justice on your behalf to give you his unspeakable comfort. That's what Christmas is about. That's what Christmas is about. Jesus giving himself as your everlasting treasure. And as we take communion, we're, not, we're remembering and we're feeding. And I don't fully understand this. I don't think anyone does. But God strengthens us as we take the Lord's Supper. He, he feeds us through this. Belgic Confession says this, just as truly as we take hold of the sacrament in our hands and we eat and we drink it, the physical part, by which our lives are sustained physically, so truly we receive into our souls for our spiritual life, the true body and blood of Christ, our only Savior. We receive these by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls. I love that they say that. Faith is the hand and mouth of your soul. So by faith, we, we trust in Christ. As we take communion, we take it in, and what we're doing is we're, we're receiving him spiritually into ourselves, and we're asking him to strengthen us. Let's pray. Father now you are letting us your servants depart in peace because we have seen your salvation Jesus that has been prepared in the presence of all people who is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to your people Israel Father we thank you that we thank you that we didn't taste death until we saw your Christ what a gift that is Many of us could have died before we saw this and before we believed this and before we treasured this. And yet you have not allowed us to taste death before we saw the Lord's Christ. And we thank you so much for that. We, we thank you for blessing our eyes to see and our ears to hear that you've opened them to receive who Jesus is. Lord, now we can live and die in peace. Father, we, we pray that you would help us this Christmas and this new year to treasure your son above all that we would hold him tight in our hearts and that we would be prepared to, to hold him up for the world to see and to tell of all the good things he's done. We are super thankful. We have so much to be thankful for. You have done everything needed so that we could have you as our treasure. Greatest gift of all. You are the greatest gift. And I love about you. I love that you have all these layers of goodness that we can continually discover. You are not a gift that we see and look away and we're done with. But you show us more and more and more of your glory. And we just thank you that in eternity, we will never exhaust all of the beauty and wonder and joy and exhilaration and exploration that you are. That There will always be more of you to see and more of you to enjoy. And that you will thrill our hearts for all time. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.